This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Setch Sights to Show, a limited series Hellraiser podcast. My name is Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe, and congratulations. I know you're a little nervous. We've kind of got a little bit of a tongue twister for our, our miniseries title, and I think you nailed it. <laughs> so good work. Why, thank you. Yes, uh, I should have been practicing, but instead I was reading comics because that's what we are talking about for our second entry. So, Brian, this is a fascinating deep dive because there, A, is way more comics than I anticipated, and also, B, they're much harder to find than I anticipated. Yeah, I mean, it's theoretically a, a deep dive, but there's only kind of so deep you can actually jump into these waters unless you like want to go on like a lament configuration like journey to like find all the underworld of the Hellraiser comics to find them because it's not an easy thing to do. Mm -mm. Yeah, so folks, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our first episode in the introduction to the series, we touched on Clyde Barker's The Hellbound Heart, which is a novella that predates the Hellraiser film, but they're very similar. So we talk about the differences, the similarities, and overall some of the things that we were most excited about in the source material that we hope maybe makes it into the new film, which is coming out later on this year. So if you haven't listened to it, we do recommend you go back and listen to that. But now we're going to continue the conversation into some of the more canonical Hellraiser comics, which really advance the story of things like the Leviathan, the Cenobite, and their daily lives. There's an intersection with Lord of Illusions, so we've got the paranormal investigator Harry Demore showing up, we've got Nix's associate uh, coming in as an adversary in one of these comics, so we're really crossing the Barker lines in terms of IP properties, and interestingly enough, some of this is also canonical, so it will continue on to inform our discussion about the Scarlet Gospel, which is where we're tentatively maybe going to end the miniseries but i'm interested brian so what was your experience had you read some of these comics before or were you just aware of their existence uh, i had read some of the the old anthology ones we're going to talk about okay so i yeah i dabbled a little bit as a kid just because I have been a Hellraiser fan since I was a kid. It was one of those things where I was in a store. I remember like seeing the name Hellraiser pop up and getting mm -hmm. excited and kind of bringing it home. But like generally as a comic reader, I'm at best a dabbler. So things will catch okay. my attention. I will check them out, but I don't have like the, the stamina that a lot of, you know, like the hardcore comic readers have to keep collecting them and mm. kind of stay on top of, of getting new issues and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm always in and out and, you know, and a lot of these, it's, it's difficult to kind of find an entry point when you're talking about kind of some of the classic comic book 
you know, if you're you're talking about like X Men or Spider Man mm-hmm. and things like that, it's it's hard to find a place to kind of fit in where you're not going to be completely lost. Yeah. I will say that, you know, if you're looking at it from the Hellraiser point of view, that's not as much of an issue because there's a lot of good stuff, but it's not one of those things where it's just like decades upon decades of content. The issue is actually the the opposite end. It's you have to find it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that is one of the issues. I mean, comics have a huge legacy. Like you and I are not subject experts on this. We're not going to pretend to be, but there's such a vibrant community in terms of if you like a movie or a book of something, there probably is a comic compendium or companion or a one-off series or something like that because it's its own thriving media. And I always knew that there were Hellraiser comics. I didn't know how inaccessible some of them were, and by which I don't mean like, oh, it's hard to get into these stories. It's not hard (laughs) to get into the stories at all. It's hard to find them. So, you know, you and I are going to talk a little bit more specifically when we get into the nitty gritty about which issues and volumes we were able to get our hands on. But considering the popularity, and maybe I'm being generous, but I would think considering the popularity of Hellraiser and its fandom, I was shocked to find that these are not easy to track down and people don't always seem to be aware of their existence. Yeah, it is kind of crazy because it's like when you get into these levels of hardcore fandom, it's usually someone will have kind of cornered the market in at least kind of archiving you know, general information about this or, or like in the, the Hellraiser, you know, they've got a fandom wiki you know, mm-hmm. and they get into all kinds of stuff about the movies and the behind the scenes and things like that. Right. If you, if you, there, there is a page for like, you know, we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, the dark watch series, uh, the, the, the comic series mm-hmm. and there's a page for it, but it is completely empty. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very weird that this seems to be like an, an unarchived corner of the the Hellraiser fandom universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm putting this out as a bit of a challenge because I guess, Brian, you and I are going to try to contribute to this dialogue with this particular podcast entry. But calling all Hellraiser fans, let's build up some of the accessibility and the knowledge base around this material because it is rich. It is fascinating. They're playing with some really weird stuff and some different ideas that uh, I think you and I are going to have a really fruitful conversation about what might be taken forward into our new film. But overall, yeah, I was shocked. This feels like it's a big gap in the Hellraiser fandom community. Yeah, yeah, which is which might also be interesting because, you know, I think we hinted at this during the first episode, but I think this this is the source material that gives the kind of the richest depths for the TV series to start right. to dig into. So, yeah. which would also be a good idea because these runs are so not well known. Mm-hmm. It's a way of being able to bring these stories out in a way that won't seem too rehashed because a lot of people haven't read these. Yeah, because that's one of the issues that we raised in that first episode, our concerns about the David Bruckner Hulu film is, is it just going to be a straight up rehash of either the Hellbound Heart or the original Hellraiser film, whereas the TV show, which we're both slightly less excited about given the talent (laughs) involved, 
has a lot of potential to do justice to some of these longer form stories, particularly around the Leviathan, the Cenobites, the battle between different forms of hell. And yeah, something that is a bit more long form where you can really build up some arcs, you can do some character development over stages. These comics are providing a really interesting opportunity in that regard. Yeah, because like, I really, I honest to God, do not want to see the story of the Hellbound Heart dragged out into multiple episodes oh, of a God, TV series. No. If they no. do that, I'm going to be very bummed out. Well, not bummed yeah. out. I'm just not going to get into it because I no. don't. That's not what I want. I will just sit there and complain about what a missed opportunity it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know who I'm fooling. I will watch probably yeah, every of minute of it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'll just complain about it. Like, is, as is our right. Right. Yeah, yeah. As people on the internet, that is what we shall do. <laughs> okay, so why don't you kick us off? Uh, what is the genesis of some of this? Because I didn't even know that there were standalone stories until you said, oh, yeah, there's anthologies going on here. Yes. So kind of the the first, at least that, that I could find, foray into the Hellraiser comic book world uh, is through the Epic Comics uh, anthology series. Epic is a now defunct imprint of Marvel. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with what an imprint is, uh, sometimes the bigger comic book publishers will kind of create these subsidies basically, or these offshoots uh, mm -hmm. to be able to run titles that might not be a good fit for their mainstream. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine Hellraiser and Marvel in the yeah. same sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I don't think Marvel could either. So they said, you know, you know, I, I don't know if they developed Epic specifically to do this or if it was, you know, they, they had Epic and they realized that would be the best home for it. Now, so I guess this was already in place. Uh, Epic itself ran from 1982 to 1994, um, mm. and their uh, their Hellraiser series. It was a 20 issue run uh, that ran from 1989 to to 1994 when when Epic uh, wrapped up. Huh, that's a longer run than I would have anticipated, to be honest. Well, it's also interesting because it's only 20 issues over the course of five years. Yeah, <laughs> so they're running. I don't know, maybe they might have ran it quarterly. Right. Which, you know, makes sense for an anthology. You know, you put out just kind of a collective group of stories, people kind of get their Hellraiser fix and then, you know, wait for a few months down the road. Yeah, it's weird, too, because this is prime Hellraiser time, right? Like, the film comes out in 87, the sequel comes out in 88, then we've got mm -hmm. a couple of years wait. But this is when the popularity of the films would have been at a near peak. Yeah, like kind of when Pinhead is hitting his doesn't get anywhere near the heights of Freddy Krueger, but it's when he's kind of hitting his Freddy Krueger stride where you start mm -hmm. seeing him on like, you know, the MTV music awards and, you know, seeing him in areas where it's like, Oh, this will be fun. Let's plug pinhead in here into some <laughs> random pop culture place. What children's programming can pinhead appear in? <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it does line up in terms of, yeah, of course this would be when they start doing the multimedia kind of the, that path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then you know for for Epic, uh, this wasn't a long form uh, series. This was you know more anthology style, kind of like uh, the the classic Tales from the Crypt comics, but with Cenobites. Wow, which which was cool because you know if you look at they they've got a lot of these put together in various compendiums. I, I would say in terms of the ones that are probably the easiest to find, various forms of these Epic series 
are probably your best bet because I think a lot of different publishers kind of put out re-releases. Mm-hmm. The volume that I found or the, the compendium that I found, I was just on half price books and it was like 10 bucks. So, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause it, when we get into some of these boom comics, they are not as easy and or cheap to find. No. <laughs> the, the, the one kind of tangent I have though, is uh, the, the cover, the picture that they use of Clive Barker mm-hmm. is clearly Clive Barker of probably, I would say the early to mid nineties. So, which makes sense. <laughs> it's around when it came out. Right. But my wife, who is not a horror fan at all, knows I love Hellraiser, has heard me use the name Clive Barker, but mm-hmm. I think she had had a very different picture of the person who created Hellraiser in her mind. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so when she saw him, she was like, it looks like a headshot of someone who's trying to get into 98 Degrees and didn't quite make it. Oh, no. I mean, that is one of the most frustrating things. The guy is super talented, and he looks like a fucking model. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing ads from uh, the Hellraiser set, and he looks like he could be auditioning for a Gap commercial, only with, like, (laughs) a couple of strategic George Michael piercings. A hundred percent. But yeah, I think she was expecting just, like, you know, some kind of Nosferatu creature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah he, he he winds up looking like someone from a boy band and she's there was a lot of like there was a, a disconnect there for mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. but yeah if you're wondering why he's on the comic series or on the the cover a obviously you know hellraiser is his baby uh, mm-hmm. but b he did have some input into some of these stories not all of them clearly right you know and that's part of the fun is that you know this brings in a lot of different voices a lot of different flavors so a lot of these stories have very different artwork they have very different themes uh, they have very different tones and sensibilities to them but one that he was directly involved with uh, there's at least two parts of it i get the sense that there might be more um, because it seemed a little open-ended the way it it ends in the compendium that i had Uh, but he did this kind of mini series called the harrowing Mm mm-hmm he did the story. Uh, the art was by uh, Alex Ross and Tristan Shane. And it's really interesting because it's it feels very Clive Barker, but it's more kind of whimsical um, while still being a Hellraiser story because it, it centers on this kind of disparate group of people who get pulled together by this kind of more benevolent entity that has been trapped within Leviathan's realm. And so they're kind of all like compelled to go to this like Midwestern town where they find this gateway to hell and where this entity is being held. And they all get these like various specific powers that are kind of unique and specific to each one of the people. Uh, Hmm. They're all coming in with their different backstories. There's like a criminal. There's just an everyday, I think like a businessman. There are these two twin sisters that are kind of constantly bickering with one another and they have to come together and save this deity and fight Cenobites. And it's like, it's, it's got such a very different feel than a Hellraiser story, but in a good way, like it's, you know, it it doesn't feel like it's betraying, you know, the, the Hellraiser mythos and, you know, and maybe that's a good thing about these anthologies. You can do all of these and you, you kind of know what you're getting because it's going to take a lot of different angles, you don't have to worry about whether or not it like sticks to canon or anything. Right. Like that. 
Well, it's interesting even hearing you discuss that because that sounds kind of like the model that they'll move forward with in some of these other comics that we're going to talk about in terms of either Kirsty or Tiffany's kind of renegade band of... Uh, I don't even know what to call them. They're basically people who go around fighting Cenobites or engineers and so on. But yeah, it, it's like we've collected people from all walks of life who have had interactions with the box and they end up getting pulled into this world. But yeah, sometimes they're priests, sometimes they're housewives, sometimes mm-hmm. they're businessmen. So it's interesting that that almost sounds like a bit of a genesis of that idea. Yeah, yeah, it kind of gives the seeds for stuff that, you know, might get opened up a little bit further, Uh, especially when you consider, you know, Clive Barker put this one together. So he's clearly kind of keeping these various threads and and kernels of stories in his Mm -hmm. mind uh, as he looks to evolve them in, in later stories. Right. Another interesting one, both because of the story and who is involved, uh, is, uh, this, this short, comic book story uh, called Wordsworth and the story is actually by Neil Gaiman oh wow who for me has always kind of been the fantasy's answer to Clive Barker and I know Clive Barker is is fantasy himself but kind of Neil Gaiman kind of takes the sensibilities that I think Clive Barker has and goes on a more traditional fantasy path Mm -hmm. than Clive Barker might yeah so to see him play in this world is interesting. Uh, and the uh, the art by Dave McKean is also really interesting because it's almost the graphic or the illustrative equivalent of, like, you know, when they, they do a story in a kidnapping and someone will put together like the ransom note by putting together the various letters from different magazines. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The, the artwork looks similar to that where it almost looks huh. like and it, it's funny because I think it's it's I don't think they actually did that because it looks like it's original artwork, but it looks like he pieced it together from disparate pictures hmm. and it's it fits in interestingly with the story because it is taking on the idea that there are different ways that the lament configuration can manifest itself. And in this case, it manifests itself as like this infernal crossword puzzle that this guy gets obsessed with. And as he solves it, he opens the gate to, to hell. Wow. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good. It's this kind of cool, just like, it's almost like a long poem as opposed to like a story, Mm -hmm. just something where it's like, the, the words are kind of piecemeal put together. The the visuals are piecemeal put together. And you kind of have to just kind of let the feel of it guide you in terms of where the, the story is going. Right. Okay. I really liked it. It's one of those instances of showing like the the kind of odd directions that this can take. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hellraiser is inherently odd. Uh, but in terms <laughs> of doing strange things with, with structure and aesthetic. Yeah, especially for a one-off, right? That's what you Mm want to see. You want to see the playfulness and the inventiveness because you don't have to keep it going. So if people don't like the one version of this, that's okay because wait until the next issue, there will be something completely different. Mm -hmm. But I love that idea of, you know, messing around with the formula a little bit. Which I think kind of brings up our, our first point of areas where we would like to see this possibly adapted for for the television show mm-hmm. i think if they take it and and do some kind of anthology series and maybe bring in different voices i think that yeah. would be pretty fantastic you know because you know one of our big <laughs> like one of our big red flags is that 
you know, David Gordon Green mm-hmm. is maybe not our our favorite voice. Not our first pick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and not to say that he he's not talented. Like I've seen stuff he's done. I've enjoyed it. Uh, there are things that I do enjoy about Halloween and Halloween Kills, but I don't enjoy them for the reasons that I think David Gordon Green wanted us to. Right. So in terms of doing a Hellraiser TV series, this would be such a great opportunity to do something in a, as an anthology where you say, okay, this person, you know, I'm, I'm producing this. I'm kind of the editor of these and, and the person who's curating them. But what's good, how it's going to be presented is all these different voices and all mm-hmm. these different styles are going to get their opportunity each week or each episode. And right. let's see what you can do and, and maybe give them like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to tell an interesting Hellraiser story. Right. And I can see it, too, because it does lend itself to a certain degree, like Barker has played around in those waters as well with his books of blood. Right. So I know that Hulu's actually already done a feature adaptation. Well, adaptation, I'm using air quotes because it's (laughs) not great, but there is a bit of a precedent for doing something like that. And again, it's a way that if you're worried about potentially losing people, an anthology is a great way to say, well, you you come in and you might really like this week's story, but if you don't, there's always next week's. Mm-hmm. And if, if they're going to do that, the key to that is David Gordon Green having some kind of self-awareness to know, to branch out in terms of the voices that he is mm-hmm. giving the opportunity to tell these stories. Yeah, different kinds of stories, different kinds of voices. Yeah. If you're going to go the anthology route, most definitely. Yeah. It can't just be, okay, this week is a story by Danny McBride. Next oh week, you God. know, we've brought in Seth Rogen. You know, <laughs> Stop. It's, you know. no. <laughs> <laughs> Again, nothing against Danny McBride or Seth Rogen themselves, but in terms of the, the people that I want telling these stories, mm-hmm. they're not it. No. So a couple other uh, stories to, to highlight from this epic run. Mazes of the Mind, uh, the story and art were both done by Mark Nelson. And this one stood out for me because it was the most kind of classically comic booky in the mm. way it was illustrated. You know, we talked about how uh, Epic is this offshoot of Marvel because you wouldn't see it in like a Marvel story. If they were asked to illustrate a Hellraiser story like it was a Marvel comic, this is probably the closest you would get to that. Like it's got hmm. the, the colors really pop, you know, it, it's, you can tell it's, it's going for kind of like the clean lines and it, it looks like comic book illustrations. Okay. Just okay. the way that the, the shading is done. And the story is interesting because it's from the point of view of the Cenobite whose job is to make more lament configurations. So it's kind of like a, it's almost like this really bizarre, dark version of like the, the Mr. Rogers neighborhood uh, segments where he would go into like the various, like the crayon factories and they would Mm -hmm. show him how things are made. Uh, It's like that, but with, uh, with the Lamech configuration. Wow. So it's very twisted and very like the way he gets them out into the world is really messed up. Um, but it's all done like the clash of the, like how dark this stuff is with that classic Cartoon-y. comic book feel. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Is really interesting. Huh. And okay. I like the way it came together. Uh, and then last but not least, 
I want to talk about a story called Dead Things Rot. And there's a couple reasons why this one interests me. First of all, this is when I was a kid and I picked up that one issue of the Hellraiser comic. Uh, this was the story. This was the one that grabbed me the most, uh, mm -hmm. probably because it was the closest to like the EC comics of the right. time it's okay. got that very like it's got that twist at the end where mm -hmm. it's like ah that poetic justice kind of comes together yep. and you see why it's called dead things rot i i don't want to give it away in case people want to read it but the basic premise is there is this guy in an apartment building who is a serial killer but you realize like halfway through his whole modus operandi is because he is trying to piece together a vessel through which someone from who is stuck in hell can come back. Okay. Uh, it, it's kind of like a more purposeful uh, version of like Frank coming back. Right. But the, the thing that really struck me as, as interesting, the story is done by DG Chichester. The art, however, is done by Mike McNola, who, if you are unfamiliar, is the... He's Hellboy, right? Exactly. And as soon as I saw his name, it all clicked in terms of, oh my God, this is exactly the style that you see in the Hell Hellboy artwork. Like mm -hmm. there's a couple of people where like their back is turned. And if you were to stick like a big red head and a giant stone hand, <laughs> you would be looking at Hellboy. Oh, weird. So it was weird the way it kind of came together. This story that I knew from being a little kid, but I didn't recognize it. Because the guy, you know, Mignola had done Hellboy yet, and so right. much time had passed. Like, I'm not going to remember, like, oh, yeah, this story that I read when I was 11 years old. Yeah, this mm -hmm. guy went on to be the, the author of Hellboy. So it's just, it's interesting to see kind of the way Mignola has uh, evolved, but still kind of kept his own style when it comes to illustrating. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to think of other established, even if they weren't established at the time, but they would go on to become sort of big names in their respective genres or formats. Mm -hmm. It's fun to think of those kinds of people getting to play in the Hellraiser waters, right? Like the story, I think to some folks, it seems very rigid, right? Like it's the movies or the book about the guy with the spikes in his head. But the reality is, is the deeper we go down the Hellraiser path, the more kind of story potential I see. And I think there are more opportunities for different types of people to come in and play around a little bit in this world. Oh, I'm going to put you on the spot because I just thought of someone and, and, I'd be interested to hear whose voice would you like if they were going to go down this road mm -hmm. of the TV series and, and give various, you know, people either who do horror or dark fantasy or, or mm -hmm. whatever, who would you like to see do an episode? Okay, so partially this is because I'm in love with Apple TV's Servant television show, which was created by M. Night Shyamalan. But in season two, he got Julia DeCorno, the writer-director of Raw oh, and Titane. Nice. So she came in and did a couple. And just her capacity for body horror and striking visuals, I'm like, oh my god, she needs to be working in this world. Yeah. That's that is a good call. I have not seen. I'll, I'll admit I have not seen Titan yet. That's a matter of when, not if, because I absolutely love Raw. I love how weird mm -hmm. the story uh, of Titan sounds. Yes. So I am. It's just kind of one of those ones I haven't gotten around to yet, but it is going to happen. And I think mm -hmm. she would she would do a hell of a Hellraiser story. 
Yeah, and she always incorporates some kind of dance move into her projects. So mm. the idea of making a dance sequence in a Hellraiser film or television episode is it fills my heart with glee. <laughs> I I would pick in terms of someone who can bring weird visuals uh can blend kind of horror aesthetics and and more erotic aesthetics mm-hmm. i would go with jan gonzalez uh, the <gasps> yes. director of knife and heart and queer yes and queer so like bringing so many of those you know kind of our it, it's checking our boxes when it comes to people we want telling hellraiser stories mm-hmm. uh, i think that would you know his stuff i would really love to see where he would take some kind of a Hellraiser story because I think his his sensibilities are just kind of like perfectly aligned with telling mm-hmm. a Hellraiser story. And then we could get his brother, who is basically the front man for the band M83 and does the music for all of his films, to do some kind of a riff on Christopher Young's score. I am all in for that. So basically we've we've struck oil with both of these two. <laughs> we've already figured out two better candidates and David Gordon Green is what we're saying. Yes. So David Gordon Green, please contact us. You know, we've given you the, the amuse-bouche of your slate of uh, of creators. Uh, we will come up with a better list once mm. the check has been signed. <laughs> yes. How many episodes, how many directors and writers? Just reach out to us. We're available. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so that brings to a close the anthology section, and now we get to move into more, I was going to say contained stories, but that's not quite accurate. We get to move into serialized stories now. So, Brian, we we move into the Boom Comics era, which uh, takes us all the way into the 2000s. So basically, as the film series goes into a fallow hibernation yeah as the as the films go into hibernation or direct-to-video sequel territory the comics kind of do as well and i think that's fascinating that at some point there's a resurgence so even though pinhead hellraiser the leviathan is all still only going direct-to-video in the 2000s the comics apparently think that there's enough of an interest in the fandom to resuscitate and even tell serialized stories and clive barker comes back for some of these and and they're actually originally created as hellraiser stories Mm -hmm. and not just like oh my god (laughs) and not just shitty spec spec scripts where they've decided to kind of shoehorn pinhead in at the end brian there are so few film noir private investigators in these comics i got very excited yeah although it is funny now we mentioned that there is something of a noir sensibility to the way some of these folks come together. And mm-hmm. there is a private detective, but there is. the way he manifests is very different than the way that they bring these uh, detectives in some of the, the direct-to-video dreck mm-hmm. that we've talked about at length, so we don't need to really you know, go down that path anymore. Yes, once again, plug for our very intensive and very sometimes painful <laughs> review of all of the films that we did over on Corpse Club. <laughs> exactly. But do you want to give the intro to Boom Comics, or do you want me to do that? Uh, I, I can take a stab at it. All right. So we have Boom Comics, which was begun in 2005 by Ross Ritchie and Andrew Cosby, and 
it it's fascinating when you start to look at the names because you mentioned that you're not huge into comics. Obviously, we both recognize Keanu Reeves as one of the first <laughs> writers. Uh, didn't realize that he was super involved in comics, but I do recognize the other name, Matt Kint, who has become quite well known in comics territory. So they began with a series called Berserker, and of course. It's written not the way that it sounds, so it's B-R-Z-R-K-R, and I love that idea. Yeah. So Boom was one of those things where they looked at pre-existing IP and they adapted it into comic format, which is honestly a pretty smart and savvy way to do it, right? People want to hear more stories about things that they're already familiar with, right? It's why we're seeing all of these sequels and remakes nowadays. So we saw some big trouble in Little China stories. We got Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. We got (laughs) Die Hard. And then we also got Nightbreed, which is fascinating because anybody who knows anything about Nightbreed knows that it was intended to be a franchise but of course there was so much studio involvement in the film it was one of the films that Clyde Barker basically said oh I hate dealing with Hollywood he gave it one more try with Lord of Illusions and then after that he said okay I'm going back to England don't call me again (laughs) (laughs) but the idea that Nightbreed could continue to exist in something like a comic format is absolute genius right like it it's a medium that works for the kinds of stories that you would tell and i think it also anticipates why we get the return of hellraiser because it's a similar kind of thing you can tell more interesting stories in maybe a less financially risky format like a comic as opposed to a film or even a tv show yeah and you can tell bigger stories because you're not hindered by budget you know, and I think that's why you're going to see with these boom comics, they are such better stories than yeah. what you're getting from the direct-to-video entries of the Hellraiser movies because they're the only thing that's hindering them is their imagination. You know, they mm-hmm. don't need to worry about you know how are we going to bring this to life because it's if you have someone who's a good artist, they'll bring it to the page. Yeah. So what we end up with is Clive Barker's Hellraiser. It's a five-volume run that is published between 2011 and 2013. It was written by Clive Barker as well as Christopher Monfett with illustrations by Leonardo Manco. And this one caught a lot of people's attention. Like when I was doing searches to try to get a sense of what happens in the later volumes, because I was only able to track down the first two. This actually got press on some pretty notable horror publication sites because this is when we bring back not only Kirstie Cotton, but we turn her into the Hell Priestess. So Kirstie becomes a Cenobite in this run of comics. And again, I'm sorry to keep harping back on the crappy direct-to-video sequels. Such a better direction to take her character than making some dumbass deal with mm-hmm. Pinhead to give him five souls <laughs> instead of them taking <laughs> hers, which is what they did in Hellseeker. Like, yep. Kirsty is an interesting character because she is not that classic kind of virtuous final girl, you know, that, mm-hmm. that model of, you know, the... I wouldn't say she's tomboyish, at least in, in the movie. Uh, right. she, she clearly fucks. Uh, she, she has she has bad taste in who she fucks but there we go. you know he's you know steve is worthless but beyond that he's fine right and there's also clearly 
an implied kind of dark side to her as well. You know, she, yeah. at the end, she, you know, she gets mad. She's mixing it up with, with the engineer, you know, trying to kind of steal back the puzzle box and like just viscerally like screaming at it in their mm-hmm. kind of final confrontation. So kind of taking her down a path where she becomes the new hell priest is very interesting to me. Yeah. So this also brings in the idea that Cenobites have forgotten who they were. So in the comic, Pinhead has the capacity to remember his past as Elliot Spencer, which is a plot point from the second film, Hellbound. And we also have the return of Tiffany, who is the young girl that is kind of mute and being abused in various ways, potentially by Dr. Chenard in that film. So this is another piece where I was actually really, I was delighted, but it was unexpected to see characters from sequels appear in that regard, or even acknowledge that the events of Hellbound are definitely canonical at this point. You know, and, and we'll talk about throughout all of these, the one canonical sin that they yet again make, where the hell is Julia Cotton? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After Hellraiser 2, we never see Julia Cotton again in any iteration of any of the Hellraiser stories. Which is perplexing because Clyde Barker absolutely had an idea of where to take that character in the hypothetical third film, which then ended up falling apart Mm -hmm. when the actress didn't want to come back. So we had to come up with this original story with Joey the reporter in Hell on Earth. But hypothetically, there was some kind of story, some kind of culmination for Julia's arc and why have we not seen it, Brian? <laughs> I don't know. It it bugs me to my core. It 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 hurts my soul. But mm-hmm. so another thing, you know, David Gordon Green. If you are going to do some kind of adaptation, find a way to bring back Julia Cotton, like in a a continuation of her story. Mm-hmm. Do it. Give give her give her an episode. Come on, just throw us a bone here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things that I found interesting about this run, as I said, I was only able to read the first two, but I was able to see the process in which Kirsty becomes a hell priestess. And there's very much a like a tete-a-tete kind of showdown between her and Pinhead where he's not a villain per se, but he is definitely trying to seduce her, but not give her all the details of the kind of dangerous progression that he's offering her. Like what she's getting into. Exactly. Yeah. That's actually where the second volume ends off. So the idea is he lures her into accepting this job promotion so that he can piece out of the role and potentially become human again by virtue of reanimating her dead friends. Because at this point, she had a fiancé. She had friends who were sort of demon hunters. Tiffany is one of those. Uh, We'll talk about the Tiffany stuff in a moment because I really did not like part of it. But... This idea that Kirstie's entire life has just become totally fucked. Like, since the time that she touched the box, that she had to deal with rank, from that moment on, her life has only been about the lament configuration, pinhead, Cenobites, all of this jazz. So it's a really dark turn. It's something where I look to the Halloween remake and how they've handled Jamie Lee Curtis dealing with her trauma. We think about Scream going on 25 years with Sidney Prescott. And this is a sad, but also compelling direction to take Kirsty, right? 
the idea that she never got over it, but also she is not a victim. She is 100% a survivor. She is taking the fight to hell to the point that she is willing to make deals with it because she feels like she has no other, she has no other life on earth. So she would rather go to hell and try to make a difference. Yeah, it's actually given me parallels of Ellen Ripley and the Xenomorphs because mm. it's that idea of it's not just that she can't let it go. It's that it won't let her go. It won't like, let her. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, she keeps getting drawn in like, you know, Ellen Ripley from Alien. Every time you see her again, she is confronting some new form of a Xenomorph. And I think there's even in uh, I think it's in part three. Yeah. Uh, there's this scene where she says, like, you've been in my life so long, I can't remember anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 kind of similar vibes the way Kirsty Cotton has had to navigate her her interactions with the Lamech configuration mm-hmm. and with uh, the Cenobites. Yeah. So I'm intrigued by this, Brian, because I know if people go back and listen to our discussion about Hellseeker on the Corpse Club episode you hate what they do for Kirsty, and you've already talked about it but i wonder does this feel more satisfying to you do you like this direction like i think it keeps Kirsty very complicated and it matures her but it's also kind of shit like if you like this character this is not a good path that they have taken her down yeah but it, it it's at least like Hellseeker, i think what gets me so angry about it is it's so small like it's such a small whimpery ending mm. not just for her but also for the Cenobites. like it it insults both of their stories because it, mm-hmm. it 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 kind of reduces everything they've been through together to this just kind of like 11th hour deal that she a offers and b they accept which right. to me is just you know if you have been hounding this woman for two decades you're not going to go like yes uh i i think we will take the deal of just five random assholes uh instead of you like if they're that obsessed with her that's not going to happen right so this feels more in line with you know tapping into kirsty's darkness but also doing it in a way that is grander in scale and tells a more for me like operatic story that Mm -hmm. hellseeker does not do yeah yeah, that's interesting. So I'm, I mentioned one of the things that I didn't love about this run is what they do with Tiffany. And while I think it's really interesting to see her, she's become a badass warrior in her own right, and she's kind of out there on the front lines. Like, So one of the things that they've done with Tiffany is that while she looks at Kirstie as a bit of a mother figure, and she's very much involved in this world, what she's doing is she's kind of gone a bit rogue, and she's seeking out, they use the language engineers, but they're human beings who have a relationship to the box, so they've either manufactured it in some way so she's globetrotting and seducing these men for the purposes of murdering them. And mm. I like the idea in theory that Tiffany is a badass warrior. She's going out and she's trying to eliminate opportunities for people to get their hands on the box. But she always does so, Brian, by bucking these men or basically oh, acting okay. like a sex worker. And I'm just like, like, I get it. These stories are not new. It does happen. It happens in real life, even. I'm not suggesting that being a sex worker is a bad thing. It's just, it feels 
exploitative like in every single instance that we see it there's like a couple of pages of panels of like her interacting with this man and it's like her in a slinky cocktail dress and then them Mm. in the bedroom and then you see her slit a guy's throat but she's nude so you're like okay so you either got undressed to do this or you fucked the guy and then did it and i'm just like or you could have just had her killing these dudes it's kind of male gazy in a way that you see kind of come up pretty often in it's, it's certainly nothing new in the comic book world you know to have these very kind of sensual depictions and illustrations of, of women mm-hmm. oh I, and i've got thoughts when we get to the dark watch about the way that the women are drawn <laughs> at the very least i will say i think they correct course a little bit with the dark watch uh which we'll talk about in a little bit and then that they've done away with the seduction part of it um and she's kind of more doing this guerrilla warfare style in terms of how she's hunting down and, and trying to collect boxes so that's at least something they course correct a little bit on okay nice Yeah, so I would say if there's one thing to take away from this arc, obviously the really fascinating idea of Kirsty as being tempted into becoming more involved in the Leviathan, in the world of hell, that's great. And honestly, her transformation into a female pinhead with a flowing, it almost has a a bit of like kind of Japanese connotations. It looks like she's wearing a kimono with a really striking red sash. Mm Mm-hmm visually it looks really impressive so i could see them trying to go that route but again then you've got to think about are we going to get ashley lawrence back to do this role because that could be a hard ask i don't know how much (laughs) interest that actress has in coming back to the franchise the other direction i could see them taking is this idea of okay we're hunting down and eliminating all of the boxes on earth and that would lend itself to a more serialized almost case of the week procedural format so if they wanted to do something that's a little bit less risky than an anthology and not quite as serialized or going into the mechanics of hell and the leviathan they could have it so that it's like each week we're tracking down a different box or having an encounter with people who have come into contact with it and if we're talking about like basic cable budgets that might be you know, a consideration that they need to take into account just in terms of there's only going to be so much Leviathan realm world mm-hmm. building that you can do. Um, so, yeah, like I'm sure they'll be working with more money than the uh, than the director video sequels, but there's still going to be some constraints. So that might be a, a practical path mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, have this thing take place in the real world, but then kind of give us glimpses into the the other side. Yeah, yeah, because I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch it, but something like The Outsider, which was an HBO adaptation of the Stephen King book, and it's not that it went to a bunch of different places, but it had that very glossy, high-end HBO vibe to it. Mm. It was serialized, but there there were opportunities to kind of hit the road, go to a new place, check out something, come back. So I think something like that meets Alias, the Jennifer Garner spy show where she was on a, a different continent every week and dealing with conspiracy theories. Like, I, I could see them going down that kind of path. It feels a little less exciting because it's a little yeah. less risky, but it also seems like maybe a more approachable way to build an audience. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe it's one of those things where they kind of start there with the first season 
And if it takes off, then maybe mm-hmm. they get a little bit more money and then they can start diving into some of the more the more dark fantasy elements of it or something like that. Yeah, because even as we're saying this, I realize at the time of recording, we don't know if this is considered a limited series or if the door mm. will be open for <laughs> potential future seasons. So that may also determine the way that they end up approaching the material. Do they want to make it a closed series and tell a finite story or do they want to go away that they could continue second season third season and so on which you know i'll be honest when it comes to horror television i gravitate more towards the limited series you're the mike flanagan appreciator yes yes (laughs) yeah but at the same time i just watched chucky and Mm. the, the first season of chucky and i am all in on whatever road they want to go down with that. So, right. um, you know, if if it's under the the confident guidance of someone like a Don Mancini, mm-hmm. then, you know, take it and run with it. Right. Um, otherwise, like, you know, I, I, I like the idea of someone going into this long form format, but knowing what their end game is and that they're not going to have to try and draw it out over like five or six seasons. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the second version that we could envision. Let's think bigger, Brian. Let's think massive budget and also serialized. And let's talk about The Dark Watch. The Dark Watch, yes. This is, if if they're going to go bold and they're going to go grand, The Dark Watch, I think, is the most ripe source material to use for that. Um, it was written by Clive Barker. So you're kind of getting that, you know, that OG flavor in there, mm-hmm. um, uh, along with uh, Brandon Seifert with illustrations by Tom Garcia. So this is, you know, it was the same guys kind of the, the whole way through, which gives also in terms of the the illustrations uh, and the kind of the, the aesthetic, uh, there's continuity there, which mm-hmm. you know, if you're telling this longer story, I think is important. And synopsis here, uh, this is... Definitely, I think, an extension or, or a continuation of the original uh, Boom series right. uh, of, of Clive Barker's Hellraiser. But here we get an addition of a new element uh, because Harry Damore mm-hmm. is the new Hell Priest. And Elliot, Spencer, and Kirsty are caught in a prison by a Leviathan who is posing as a milkman for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I love that detail. It makes no <laughs> sense to me, but... It also makes perfect sense somehow. Yeah. I mean, because so often... <laughs> Like folks who know Hellraiser will know that Leviathan is sometimes the reference to the actual hell world, but it's also the god of that world and is typically represented by a prism that hangs in the sky. So in order to tell this story, it makes sense that there has to be some kind of manifestation that we can latch onto that isn't just a prism. So Mm -hmm. I just love the idea that, okay, well, if we can't have that, Milkman seems like the way to go. Well, because it's like in this kind of surreal, you know, almost kind of tongue-in-cheek way, the clean lines of a milkman's uniform along with kind of that, you know, that that pointed cap mm-hmm. kind of lines up with the, you know, the uh, okay. Leviathan. Right. You know, if you're going to choose some kind of random, you know, job or, or profession uh, with a uniform that kind of lines up with that, obviously, other than the fact that it's completely white, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes a weird sort of logic. Right. Um, so you have Leviathan, who, who's who got Kirsty and Elliot Spencer in this mine prison, mm-hmm. uh, and 
we're also dealing with the forces of Abaddon, which is a rival hell who are waging war against Leviathan and Earth and the Cenobites. And so this is where we're getting this very grand scale yeah. and bringing in a lot of different Clive Barker flavor. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep up with all the stuff he's he's bringing in here. Um, but I do like the fact that he is bringing the idea of these different types of hell, you know, mm-hmm. so you see that that Leviathan style hell that was introduced, you know, maybe hinted at very. I don't even know if you'd say it was hinted at in the original Hellraiser, because for me, no. there's there's the original Hellraiser where I don't think hell is. These creatures don't necessarily come from hell. It's just the only way you can kind of convey the the type of pain and torture that they're bringing with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's a way of being able to kind of shorthand the level of, of BDSM that they're bringing to the table. Right. Um, and, and a way to make it into a horror movie, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the original title of it that he was going by was Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. And I just don't think that has the same. <laughs> I think it's honestly, I think it's more accurate, but I don't think it's as um, it's not going to draw people in. Yeah, it's not palatable and it's not sellable, that's for damn mm-hmm. sure. And so it's really not until Hellbound that you see, that you get the sense of this man behind the curtain in mm-hmm. Leviathan. And so, you know, all, I think, subsequent stories have taken that element and run with it, which right. I think is, honestly, it's a divergence from the the original, but it's canon now, you know, in, in mm-hmm. so many different ways. And yeah. so... I think it's interesting that they address Leviathan's realm as just kind of one almost circle of hell. Right. Um, and, and hint that there are, you know, all the people or all the demons that Harry Demore through his stories has been going up against are just from a different kind of hell, yeah. a much kind of messier version of hell. And so seeing them come together and clash is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating, we talked about this in the Corpse Club episode around Judgment, which is the last, quote unquote, Hellraiser film to have been released. (laughs) It's not one that we particularly like, but it's also the one that goes the closest into the systematized mechanics of how the Hellraiser universe works, right? Like, there's somebody who makes the box there's a certain procedure for bringing the Cenobites into being and so on and I think that there's some people like you and I who kind of get off on learning a bit more about that and then there are other people who are like oh I don't need a version of like Hellraiser the office right like (laughs) I don't need to know about the daily lives of this so if that's not your jam, I can see the Dark Watch maybe not being as appealing a read because it is about the power plays. Like the forces of Abaddon have developed talismans that make them impervious to the Cenobites' powers, and vice versa. Like Harry finds out that you can use a gun because uh, it's a human weapon as opposed to like the chains of Hell and Leviathan. And there's some fascinating machinations about like. Because Harry is new to this gig and Elliot Spencer is not around because he's been imprisoned, some of the first volume of this three volume arc is just Harry getting the lay of the land. So he's mm-hmm. being guided by the female Cenobite that we're all familiar with. Um, she actually has a fairly prominent role in this, which I did appreciate. And 
And just a reminder to the listeners, we're not being shitty when we say the female Cenobite. That's actually her title. Yeah, because, of course, <laughs> they still can't give her an actual name or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he's getting these, like, guided tours and being told about, like, what his responsibilities are. And as we're seeing this, we're also getting glimpses of what daily life looks like in the Leviathan. And it is a combination of the M.C. Escher-esque visuals that we saw in Hellbound, the second film. But then there's also some really intriguing stuff. Like, there's a moment where the female Cenobite is giving him this tour and they're floating on a cube and beneath them are other floating cubes where there are individuals being separately tortured to their own devices. And the female Cenobite mentions, you know, yeah, you got to shake it up because if they get used to a certain form of pain, then it's not eternal torment anymore. So you have to find new ways to make them hurt. But even the hurt isn't the same as what it's like to be human and get hurt, which is what we find with Elliot Spencer. Mm -hmm. Like when he's transformed in Clive Barker's Hellraiser, the, the previous version of Boom, he actually talks about how everything as a Cenobite feels stunted. So you never get the richness of the pain that you would feel if you were a human being. So I love that there's opportunities to explore, yeah, the mechanics of hell, but also the practicalities of living as a Cenobite and what does it feel like on a day-to-day basis. And they also do such a great job of kind of seamlessly incorporating things that's, that seemed random and disparate earlier on so like the fact that at the end of the original hellraiser you know the disheveled guy who eats crickets you know mm-hmm. turns into a giant skeletal dragon yeah, he comes and back. flies away. yes yeah and you realize that like it's not just the one there these are mm-hmm. there are multiple of these these are yeah. guardians of the puzzle boxes yeah and they even like and i think this is kind of the the ultimate chef's kiss moment they find a way to incorporate some of the gobbledygook from the direct video mm-hmm. entries in a way that makes sense in terms of, you know, the fact that in, in two entries in a row, they play with the idea that the main character is in hell, but they don't know they're in hell. Right. And they're kind of in this continual loop of, of these situations. Mm-hmm. They bring that to bear with the, the mind prisons that Elliot Spencer and Kirsty are caught in. Yes. You know, they, in, in talking about, producing that variety of torment you know they say that like it's not just physical torment you know if you want to mix it up you need to mess with people's minds as well mm-hmm. and so it, it brings that in as a way to explain you know if you're watching those direct-to-video sequels and going like that's not how this works right well according to the dark watch that's part of how this works you know yeah. and it's done in a much more kind of compelling way yeah one of the other interesting things so folks listen to the first episode of this limited mini series podcast that we're doing they heard us talk at length about how we're less interested in the idea of this being a literal kind of hell like a punitive hell and the cenobites are the arbiters of that or the the judgment the jury and the executioner kind of deal and I was interested to get your take on this because when we get into these comics and these visions, that is more or less what we're doing, right? Like this is hell. This is Mm -hmm. where people are being tormented and the Cenobites are the enforcers. But I actually thought that there was a richness and it's complicated by the notion that this isn't hell in the conventional sense where there's also a heaven where good people go. (laughs) This is where all dead people go. Because like at one point in... Not just the Dark Watch and Clyde Barker's Hellraiser, 
as I mentioned, the reason that Kirsty takes on the role is because her fiance has been killed and all of her friends have been killed. So she feels like she has nothing left. And Elliot Spencer makes this deal with her that he will bring them back to her. And of course, they come back as polluted kind of Cenobites. And it's an interesting idea that this is just where you go when you die. And it doesn't matter if you've been good. Your your punishment may be less severe, but it's like, this is where we all go. So it's not bad. It just is. And I think there's there's also an element that, that could be a play there, though, that it's not necessarily that everybody that dies goes to hell, mm-hmm. but everybody in Kirsty's world. Like everybody Ugh. within kind of her her sphere. Right including herself, like they've all been corrupted yeah. in some way. They've by... been touched by it, so they have yeah. to go here. Yeah. Um, so there, there very well might be people who, when they die, they, they go to some version of heaven, but not any of the people that we're focusing on in these in these comics, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, is a very interesting thing to, to think about. And, yeah, it, it's I, I think what the Dark Watch does well, but I think is going to be tricky is because there are so many elements that are being brought together, there's a lot of stuff that's getting juggled. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be, you know, it's almost too much, I think, for the, the, the series itself, for the comics. I think trying to do that as a TV serial is going to be even trickier. Yeah, the scope of this is so big, which I really appreciated on the page because you can give us like a big splash page, right? Like give mm-hmm. me a full page panel of Harry Demore rocking his new weird eye as a Cenobite riding a dead horse, mm-hmm. leading an army of people who are primed to invade earth and go to battle against Abaddon. Like, Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's really exciting visually to look at. How are you going to capture that kind of scope on a TV budget? It is doable, obviously. And HBO has plenty of money, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're right. There's so many moving parts to this. Like, are we going to bring in characters from Lord of Illusions? Are we maybe going to bring in characters who look like they could be from Nightbreed? Are we going to pay to get Scott Bakula and Ashley Lawrence to come back? Or are we going to try to recast them? So I think the idea of the mechanics of Hell could be interesting. I don't think you're ever going to be able to get away from Pinhead as an entity Maybe you switch that up the way that we're doing with Jamie Clayton and you cast somebody different and say it's sort of a a variation of a character you're already familiar with. But I don't think you can tell a story this size unless you're going to say we're committed to five seasons of Hellraiser and we're going to build up to this in the fifth season. Yeah. But now that you've mentioned I so badly want to see Scott Bakula right? in like full Cenobite makeup now. Oh my God. Yes. That would be amazing. <laughs> I think and it would also be just as interesting to see like Ashley Lawrence kind of yeah. with all of her interactions with, with these, I would like to kind of see her take on, take on that pinhead mantle and do it in a way that like I do. I love that in the Hellraiser, the initial boom comics, you know, that the Clive Barker Hellraiser and then the dark watch, you get the different flavors mm-hmm. of Penhead that are aligned with kind of the, I don't know how you would, the hosts right. uh, sensibilities. 
so it, it, it's you know interesting to see the way being pinhead manifests itself from person to person mm-hmm. yeah and just how exciting would it be to actually have this actress come back and get to do something so different and so mm. exciting right like mm-hmm. really give a capper to the character by taking her into a completely new literal realm but also just like having the opportunity to come back and do something different with that character like this is way more than what we're asking Jamie Lee Curtis and Dev Campbell to do in their respective franchises, right? Like this is a huge evolution for this character. And it would be really exciting to get to see that play out with the original actress coming back after all these years. She'd be spending a lot more time in the makeup chair. Oh boy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would not envy that makeup process at all. No. <laughs> Uh, the one other thing I did want to point out that I do enjoy about the Dark Watch is that you kind of realize that Elliot Spencer is a little shit. Oh, he's such a dick, hey? In, in no way related to being Pinhead. Because you'll you'll see in the story that he has separated himself from being Pinhead, mm-hmm. but he has taken on a different mantle. Like he has decided that he wants to join the forces with Abaddon, the rival hell. Right. So he's just kind of like power hungry Mm -hmm. and he's very petty. And again, this is, I think a very, it's landed in a very different place than the original pinhead from the original Hellraiser. Like he's, he's a shithead. He's not sympathetic at all. No, (laughs) no. Uh, you know, and the you know, we've we've talked time and time again about the the Cenobites from the original. You know, they're not the villains; they're just kind of doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But here, you know, Barker has leaned into you know where these characters have evolved to from the first one, yeah. and he's decided that Elliot Spencer is just kind of a turd, and, yeah. and he is definitely like one of the the major villains. Not as Pinhead, but Mm -hmm. as Elliot Spencer, which I think is very interesting. Oh, yeah. He was actually giving me shades of Frank. So we we talked about the manifestation of Leviathan as this milkman as he's mentally torturing Spencer and Kirsty, which, P.S., was my favorite section of this Dark Watch thing. I think there's a lot of fascinating other stuff, but especially the panels as they were made to think that they were lovers in one life. They were 1950s housewife and husband in another. Like, I thought that that was a really clever, interesting way. And getting to see Leviathan every time they sort of figured out, oh, no, this isn't real. We're being fucked with. And Leviathan would just show up and be like, next and click and (laughs) move them into the next hallucination. Ah, I thought it was, I, I could see it play out cinematically and it just seemed so fucking cool. But yeah, this whole time, Spencer is basically acting like Frank. Like, he's stalking Kirsty, he's hitting her, he's threatening her, and you really just get the full understanding, oh, Elliot Spencer is a huge piece of shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm, like, I'm already visualizing this, like, if you were going to do this as a television series, this would be the episode where they kind of come into that cold, mm-hmm. with Elliot Spencer and Kirsty in these different kind of interactions and you know maybe in the first one or two episodes you've been following harry demore and you've Mm -hmm. been following tiffany because at at this point in the story uh tiffany has 
kind of let go of that whole, you know, seducing people to get their box and, and destroy it. She's just basically got like a team. Yeah. It's her. And there's like a CIA operative in there. There's uh-huh. like a New York pickpocket. It's yep. just like, again, kind of going back to that, that Motley crew idea that I talked about uh, from back in the, uh, the harrowing from the, the epic run. Yeah. Yeah. She's got this little team together and, you know, and you've got, you know, Harry who is trying to figure out how he's going to, navigate being mm-hmm. the new hell priest. So I would see, you know, you get a couple episodes of that. And then in the third episode, you just kind of come into Elliot and Kirsty, right? But not explain what's going on. You're just seeing these, these various kind of little short plays play mm-hmm. out and they just kind of blink into the next one. Yeah. Um, and then only realize at the end, you know, that they're in this mind prison, you know, that I think that would be such a great way to reintroduce these characters, especially for people who are watching who haven't read these comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see them do it that way. Or I could see them do it like mini vignettes a la WandaVision, where every episode yes. opens with like five minutes of them in a completely different situation. And it's like episode three or four, when you finally have them figure it out, right? Oh man! So you give them like a whole season devoted to just yeah, to just them. Oh man, that would be wild. Yeah, and maybe maybe the finale. If you're thinking of this as an ongoing serialized show, the end of season one is them finally breaking out of that prison and realizing, oh shit, we've been in hell the whole time. There's mm-hmm. Harry Demore or there's Tiffany. I'm I'm into it. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I, I think these would need to be, and this is the direction that, that these shows are going anyway, you know, these seasons would maybe be like six episodes a piece or something yeah. like that. I, I'm greedy and I was thinking eight, but <laughs> eight, if it's only one season, I think if mm-hmm. we're going to do more than that, it's like, they do need to almost be contained, but I want them rich. Like I want them thematically rich. I want them visually rich and we've not talked about it, but there is there's a curious lack of sexuality in the comics i found um Mm -hmm. i do want to give a quick shout out that i think this is where the artwork really fell down for me it is it's gorgeous in some regards but it's also quite cartoony in the way that bodies are shaped like it's very curvaceous very marvel Mm -hmm. and the women in particular it's a lot of butt sticking out boobs sticking out in Mm -hmm. frankly uncomfortable and unrealistic looking poses yeah like a lot of the time in the mind prison kirsty is naked yeah and like elliot spencer is too but you're also not getting the shape of elliot spencer's dick but you are certainly <laughs> seeing kirsty's boobs and butt a lot yeah mm-hmm. yeah but i do think that that's sort of one of the elements that the comics sometimes forget about is that there should be sex and sexuality in these stories mm-hmm. as well they very much are more focused on the violence and almost like war yeah yeah no it's like you know at this point if if they're going down this road it fits for hbo because it's like game of thrones with satellites yeah oh my god there's your tagline right (laughs) (laughs) that was the pitch at the pitch meeting like Uh, what if we did game of thrones but we did it with pinhead oh well now we know how david gordon green got the job then (laughs) oh man but yeah Again, we've talked about how this is all purely speculation. We have, oh, yeah. we have no, no idea, idea what shape this series is going to manifest itself as. But it's, you know, it's it's that fun fan speculation to to think of like these are all the places it could go. Mm-hmm. I am not 
expecting i'm putting no expectations on the series at this point just because i don't want to set myself up for disappointment (laughs) but it would be it would be very cool to see the elements from either the anthology comics or from the long form uh serial comics Mm -hmm. come together as a television series because i think that's going to be their best bet to tell a story that's going to go beyond one movie right Yeah, I'm in hard agreement. And I love the fact that we were able to have a discussion about two very different approaches. Like, I'm personally more interested in the serialized story because I think there's a greater potential to do something really interesting and innovative and even risky with it. But your introduction and sort of overview of the anthologies makes a lot of sense to me, particularly in the current moment that we're living in, where you think about what Ryan Murphy has been able to do with individual seasons of Mm. American Horror Story, and then his version this year where he did almost isolated anthology entries. Like, I think that there's room for this, and I do think that there would be an appetite for it. So I think really at the end of the day, these comics have provided a fascinating opportunity, like a roadmap of where a hypothetical series is going to go. And I'm just really curious to see, do they pay attention to these? Because Clive Barker was involved in writing all of these Mm -hmm. and he is executive producing the TV show as well. But that doesn't mean that he's going to be creatively contributing story ideas or telling them hey you should really think about dipping into that anthology story so i'm curious to see if they're just going to throw the whole thing out or if they're going to say well there's precedent here people might be interested in seeing this be adapted yeah yeah i certainly would Um, but right now it is you know (laughs) it is they are completely incommunicado with with where they're going with this so Mm -hmm. um who knows? You know, Who it could knows? be could be something completely different. And again, yep. if they're just going to try and stretch out Hellbound Heart into a series of television, I'm going to be bummed out. Yeah. So speaking of stretching it out, we have at least <laughs> one more entry in this limited series podcast. And Brian, we are headed to the Scarlet Gospel. So back into book format. It's not a novella this time. And we're mm-hmm. still involving Harry Demore from Lord of Illusions. And I will say it's it's taking because I've read this before. Uh, I've started tapping into it for a reread. You're gonna get some similar elements. I don't think I don't think Barker has kept the Dark Watch or the, the any of the Boom comics as canon per se. Okay. But he's definitely still bringing in similar elements in terms of combining various elements of hell and he is definitely harry demore is the protagonist in the scarlet gospels so you're kind of seeing that clash of the harry demore styles of hell and demons with the cenobites and kind of how they interact with one another so you're going to see similar themes and tones but it's it's not the the exact same and there's also going to be i don't know if you've read scarlet gospels at all before uh, but there is going to be a uh, very prominent entity in this that has not been seen in any hellraiser iteration before oh okay no i'm going into this cold all i know is that it's harry versus pinhead and big big stuff involved in terms of hell and Mm -hmm. what the plans are for that but apart from that i have no idea what else to expect i'm excited more for our conversation I, i think i I have some mixed feelings about the Scarlet Gospels as a 
a literary work, mm -hmm. but I am very excited to talk to you about it to kind of unpack it. Okay. Exciting stuff. So yeah, folks, that's where we are going next. But until then, Brian, if people want to talk to you more about the Hellraiser comics, or they're just catching up now on the Hellbound Heart, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, best way to do that is I am on Twitter excessively at Evil Taylor Hicks. Uh, that's where you can find uh, me rambling about various stuff, including usually Hellraiser. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also find me just kind of, you know, uh, shouting out the different work I do for Room War, for Daily Dead, and for Cinepucks. Nice. Okay. And if folks are looking to get a hold of me, I can be reached also on Twitter or Instagram at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, uh, you can hear me ramble at length about other not always Hellraiser properties on Horror Queers, <laughs> as well as White Ladies in Crisis, which is on the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad network. Okay, so we have our marching orders. We are headed back into hell proper with Harry Demore next time. So everybody get reading Scarlet Gospels because we have a lot to discuss. And until then, this has been Such Sights to Show. And uh, I don't know, I think I'm going to go read some more comics. I think I will as well. <laughs> In that case, success. Yay. <laughs> squad.